Hello and welcome to the Rugby Dungeon. Thank you for listening, thank you for subscribing and most importantly, thank you for leaving us your iTunes reviews. We really do appreciate it. Now, if you want to get involved with the conversation, please follow us on Twitter. I'm at jbeardmore. This podcast is at the Rugby Dungeon. And there's the world's biggest rugby podcast, the Egg Chasers Rugby Podcast, which is out every Monday without fail. And over the Lions Tour, we believe it's going to be out at least three times a week. Let's say at least two times a week, because you can never exactly tell what we're going to do next. But in three days' time, when the Lions finally do play, you will find out. Today's guest is Mick Hogan. Uh, Mick is the man in charge of Newcastle Falcons, and... I think it's fair to say over the last year, Newcastle Falcons have gone from someone who you think of as perennial premiership strugglers to quite an interesting outfit. They're certainly building a very strong squad under the tutelage of Dean Richards. So I'm going to be joined by Mick in just a second and we're going to go over all all of this stuff. One last thing, if I've not given you enough rugby podcasts... Um, you can also check out the Thistle Rugby podcast. These guys are experts on Scottish rugby. I know it's a niche market, but it does exist. They will be covering the Scotland-Australia tour um, all throughout the summer, and I think they've got a bit of an off-season programme too. So anyway, that's all the housekeeping done. This is my interview with Mick Hogan. Hope you enjoy it. Okay, well, I've had my coffee, I've had my breakfast, I'm sitting comfortably, and I'm now joined by Mick Hogan. How are you, Mick? Morning, I'm very well, thank you. Now, we're doing this um, relatively early in the morning-ish. I I don't suspect it's that early for you. Uh, What time do you usually start there at Newcastle Falcons? Uh, Usually get in between sort of eight and half past, uh, mainly to to miss the traffic. But what what I also find is I get most of my, uh, my best work done first thing in the morning before... You start getting uh, distracted with other things, so yeah, it's, uh, I like to get an early start. So, just give me an indication of what you do on a do on a daily basis and how a Premiership Rugby club functions. Um, I, I think the first thing to say is that no two days are like the other, and I know it's a cliche and everybody says that, but it really is the case in sport. Uh, we're quite, you know, we're, we're like every other Premiership club, we, we share a lot of similarities, but we, we have a lot of unique features. Uh, and the unique features here at Newcastle are that we, you know, we're not just a rugby league, uh, rugby union club with the Falcons, but we also have a, a part-time rugby league club. Mm. Uh, we we own our own stadium and we, we obviously have a 3G pitch uh, like Saracens and Worcester do. So that entails that we do a lot of community work. So day-to-day is, is never the same. Um, probably start of the week is, is a lot more meetings with department heads and sort of senior managers meetings uh, and then as the week goes on uh, I find myself sort of off-site a bit more members going out sort of meeting the council or sponsors or, or, or people within the business community but mm-hmm. it, it really is uh, a case that no two days are the same uh, as, as with all people that work in sport it's not nine to five as well so during the week you know we'll we may have some evening functions on we, we may even play games on Friday nights oh uh, yeah and then okay. obviously your weekends as well pretty much are not your own so and with having two uh, two professional clubs here as well, I've worked out probably you know forty out of the fifty two weekends of the year. I'm I'm at a eight game or games, um, be that home or away. So it's busy. It's it's uh, it is long hours. It's hard work, but it's it's really enjoyable. So can you just tell me a bit about your a bit about your history? Yeah, I've always worked in rugby. So I uh, I graduated from uh, what was Newcastle Polytechnic twenty five years ago, yeah. and actually we've got our twenty fifth year anniversary. <laughs> on Saturday night, we're getting some uh, some of the old cronies back together, so that should be good to see all them. Um, so I graduated and I went uh, into a development job, and it was developing rugby league in the region, which, uh, you know, when you consider that at the time, and, and probably still to an extent now, there's not a load of rugby union played up here, but there was even less rugby league. So mm. I did that for seven years. Uh, it was a great job. I enjoyed it. I was hosted at Gateshead Council, um, just getting out, just getting kids and adults playing rugby league. and. Uh, forming a few new clubs and we set up an academy and uh, it led to the formation of uh, a new team in Super League back in 1999 called Gateshead Thunder. I was about to mention them. Uh, uh, and I went to work for them for a year and we, we actually had a pretty good year so with a team from scratch we finished in six and in the old days it was a top five playoff and we missed the playoffs by one point oh. and crowds were on the rise and actually our crowds were bigger than the Falcons at the time and bear in mind that the Falcons had won the Premiership 18 months earlier. So it was, you know, it was quite an achievement. But unfortunately, we only, we only, we didn't get the central funding like all the rest of the clubs got. So we were always on the back foot, and by the end of the first year, we'd run up some losses that we really couldn't sustain. Yeah. And ultimately, the club then merged with Hull, which is a 
normally mergers happen between sort of businesses that are close by or, or within the same area. So we, we merged with the club 140 miles away. I got offered a job down there, but I, I, I didn't want to leave the northeast at the time. Mm. Um, my wife had a great job, and we just we just love living up here. So I then actually got a chance with the Falcons. The Falcons heard I was looking for work, and I went and worked there for a couple of years, setting up their first community program. Um, and it was it, it was a good time to be involved at the club because they'd you know they did won the Premiership in ninety seven ninety eight, and then really it you know the, the stars had sort of all retired or left, so it was quite a young team that was left. Still in, still in, you know, an area that was pretty virgin to rugby, mm. um, uh, and we, you know, Rob Andrew um, got me over and said, "Look, you know, we, we we know you understand community and marketing, so will you come and uh, get on board?" And the great thing about it was, R- Rob stood in front of all the players, introduced me, said, "Right, this is Makey starting a community pro. We're starting a community program. You guys are central to it. You're going to go out and do a bit of coaching in your spare time. You're going to work with clubs, schools. We need to get more people interested in rugby and the Falcons." And he said to him, "I well, said, look." If you don't want to do it, that's fine. And then he paused and then he pointed at the door. He says, but that's the door. He says, you can collect your P45 on the way out. And <laughs> when you get that from the top, you know, he sort of said it jokingly, but there was a lot of feeling behind it. Um, he just said, look, wait, guys, we either do this or we're not of a club. Uh, and then Doddy wasted up and Doddy just said, right, come on, this lad needs a hand. Uh, we're getting behind him. And we just had a group of senior players, Doddy Weir, Gary Armstrong, Pat Lamb that was still there. Uh, Pat Lamb came back. Uh, some really, Ross Nesdale, some really good guys that, do you know what, had been around the blocking rugby, had achieved so much, but were actually willing to come out on evenings and weekends to go coaching in schools and rugby clubs and pubs and clubs and just spread the word. And we we had a, we set off a really good community programme um, and the crowds went up and we, you know, we, 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 we shot the crowds up in the first two years and it was, um, it was a really good time to be involved in the club. You know, we're, we're still... Still way behind the crowds at Leicester and other places could generate, but when he started to pull sort of seven and eight thousand, which at the time was a ground capacity, yeah, uh, it, it gave a real good buzz to the place. So from there, I got offered a chance to go down to Premiership Rugby to run all the community programmes within uh, the clubs, and I, I did that. So I moved to uh, to the Midlands and worked in London for a couple of years, uh, and then the Falcons came calling again. Um, so I got the chance to come back to the club uh, as commercial director because um, I'd done a bit of commercial work down in London as well. Uh, so I came back and, and I'd agreed to come back the uh, the two days before Johnny Wilkinson kicked the drop goal in the World Cup final, right at the end of 2003. So right. as soon as he kicked that, I thought, blimey, my job's going to get interesting. <laughs> and, uh, and it did, and again, just a really good time to be involved in the club. They built a new, built a new stand, and, or, or two new stands at the ground, um, and came back and we won the cup within... In a couple of months down at the Power Gen Cup against Sale Shark. So, had four and a half really, really good years then. Uh, you know, we had some tremendous players Matt Burke, Colin Jarvis coming in, Carl Heyman, Johnny was playing, Jamie Noon, Tom May. Some, we had a real good team. We never quite cracked the top six. We were all sort of sixth or seventh or, or a bit lower. But we played a really good brand of rugby. And uh, again, another good time to be involved at the club. Um, then from the Wigan Rugby League uh, offered me the chance to become chief exec, which uh, which I took. Uh, did a couple of years there. Moved to Sale for a couple of years as chief exec. Uh, so we, we moved down to the northwest, uh, mm. which is where I'm originally from. So that was that was four good years in uh, in both league and union. And then uh, I set up on my own as a consultant and, and did some work for the Rugby World Cup in the very early days. So did two and a, the first two and a half years of uh, of England 2015. Amazing. Uh, which was just brilliant because we ran the program to uh, to get all the uh, the venues in the cities um, signed up. Uh, that was that was great just to see how much people, how much you know, local authorities and stadiums really, really wanted to be part of the tournament, mm-hmm. uh, and built some really good relationships with with stadium operators and, and local authorities, and just had the greatest time. Perhaps my only regret was I didn't. I, I had a contract to stay on until the end of the World Cup, but in the meantime, I'd started back at Newcastle for a third time. They, they'd lost the chief executive, and, and the owner Seymour Curdy just asked, you know, could I, could I help out? So I was doing a couple of days a week up here, and three, three days a week down in London on the World Cup. Uh, and in the end, it just became too much. The travelling was was killing me, and, and you know, I, I didn't have a minute to myself. Um, yeah. So I had to choose, and, and long term, I've always wanted to come back to Newcastle. So. Uh, moved back up, Seymour offered me the job of managing director, 
uh, and, and I've moved the family back up now. So, bit of a journey, bit, bit of a long-winded answer there. But you know, I've, I've just always worked in rugby. I absolutely love it. I love rugby union. I love rugby league. Um, I don't understand the uh, the people in both codes that don't like the other. They're two different sports. It's like comparing yeah, baseball exactly. to cricket. You know, and, and I think if you appreciate each sport for what <clears> it is, there's so many similarities as well. There's, you know, both are really built heavily now on on community and, and helping that community game. You know, both have tremendous fan bases that are growing. So I just love both codes and, and the chance now that, you know, we've got a, albeit a semi-professional club, uh, Newcastle Thunder based out of here, it's um, it's it's a golden opportunity, um, I think, to grow rugby of both codes in the North East. Just about, out of interest, why did you decide to go with Newcastle Thunder? Why didn't you look at the old Harlequins model when they basically had two teams badged up as the same club? Yeah, I, th- I think... You know, look, we're, we're fighting. Um, we're fighting a long-term hearts and minds uh, um, challenge up here in just trying to convert people away from football into, into rugby. Full stop. So I think if you if you had two clubs that were, you know, that were named the same, we we just thought it would be um, confusing. Mm. You know, we we moved over because Gates had Thunder in the meantime after moving to Hull all those years ago, reformed as a semi-professional club. We played it obviously Gates had for years, had a bit of success, but was struggling quite badly. And when we brought them over, we decided to keep the the Thunder bit. We wanted, you know, wanted the Newcastle bit because obviously the club was going to be based in Newcastle now, uh, and Newcastle's a big city name, which I think it's a really strong brand. So yeah. we just decided on Newcastle Thunder, and I think you, you know people now know which code hopefully they're, they're following, um, and the commonality is is the Newcastle bit and the fact that we play at the same stadium. Now this might not be immediately obvious to people, but how has your plastic pitch helped with your with your community work? Because I imagine it allows you to actually engage directly now, at, you know, on the pitch at the stadium. Yeah, it look it, it helps on non-match day and match day. So non-match day through the week we have um so just off the top of my head we have the university men's rugby union university Ladies Rugby Union, Northumber University Men's Rugby League, who all train and play here. Mm-hmm. We have schools festivals on during the day. We have a full-time Rugby League Education Academy that is based at the stadium. So that's got 36 uh, 16 to 18-year-olds that mm-hmm. study full-time and train full-time on the wow. pitch. Um, on evenings, we, we train both the Rugby League and the Rugby Union Academies train here. We have all sorts of junior development squads. We local clubs play on Wednesday can book it out. Uh, we obviously have the Falcons and the Thunder as well. Uh, and then in the summer we we have things like touch rugby. So starting next week we have a ten week league for, uh, for for adults playing touch rugby every Wednesday night. Uh, you know, we get about 250, 300 people down the stadium every Wednesday just just keeping fit really. Men and women, mixed sex. It's all played out on the centre field. If you have a grass pitch, you can't do that. No, you know, and, and actually, if you'd have had our old grass pitch, which was, you know, as bad as it came, and, and that was no reflection in, you know, in what the ground staff could do. It was just a really old pitch that had poor drainage, and you know, we're in a part of the country that's a bit colder and a bit wetter than everybody, everywhere else. So, the growing season is shorter. So, with all that in mind, we, we knew we were struggling with the grass pitch. We put this down, and. I, I actually think it's the best thing we've done off the field in the uh, in, in the last ten years of the club. Yeah, that's amazing. So you've gone from an a- from an asset you can only use basically once or twice a week to pretty much full time use now. Once or twice a week at best as well, because there's a when we when we floated the idea when I, when I first started back at the club, we floated it past Dean Richards, the director of rugby. And Dean at first was it you know rugby should be played on grass. I'm, I'm not a big fan. Um, and two things happened within the space of a couple of weeks. We were playing a game over Christmas in 2013 against Wass, and we we had the ball on our own line, and the, and the fly half had dropped back to the dead ball line, and he was waiting for the ball to do a clearance kick. And while he was waiting, the pitch was that bad. His, his feet sunk <laughs> underneath the mud, and he was suctioned in. It was a bit like one of these sort of horror films where people can't get out of quicksand, and he couldn't get his feet out. Um, so he had to sort of decline the kick, and Wasp spotted this. They charged down the box kick by the flyer, the scrum half, and oh. won by five points. So it actually cost us a game. And then a couple of weeks later, we were down at Saracens, and it rained for six hours solid before the game. Stopped half an hour before we went out to play, and Dean said he couldn't believe how good the surface was after six hours of rain. And at that minute, he sort of had a, we'll not call it an epiphany, but he, he just sort of got why we needed one. Um, yeah. And it's taken us a while to get used to it because. It's a it's a completely different style of play. It's such a fast pitch. The ball is in play, fifteen to twenty percent longer. So 
the fitness levels of the players are, you know, we, we find have to be increased, and that perhaps caught us out a bit in the first year. Um, but no, we the, the players love it now because it's you know it's consistent no matter what time of year, you know what time of day we play, what the weather's been like, it is pretty pretty consistent, and they know the pitch is going to perform. Yeah, well that's an interesting point you make actually because it must be I've got to admit about halfway through the season Newcastle really started ca- catching the eye for a mm. team that t- team that can play a bit, and that's no no small part down 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 to your pitch I imagine. Yeah, it's it's the pitch. It's uh, it's as you mentioned. It's the it's the quality and the style of player that we've bought, and it's also the uh, you know we've got a new attack. I say no, he's been here three years now. So Dave Walder used to be with the club for years and played yeah. at loss. Has brought some you know a completely different facet to our attack play, and I think you combine all three of those. You know we've you know we've got the likes of Sinotti, Sinotti, Nicky Gonover, you know Simon Hammersley. We've got some you know Joel Hodgson up fly. I've got some incredible. Ball players, and we've added to that next year with uh, with Maxim Mamos, the French centre, Josh Masabesi, um, Toby Flood coming back, oh. uh, and and DTH Van der Mower. So we, we've got we've pretty much got I think the Harlem Globetrotters in the back line, and we, we've just got to get them the ball now. If we get them the ball on our pitch, they're going to score tries. Yeah, it, it's gonna it's gonna pan out to be a very exciting season next year. Um, out of interest, then, because you mentioned right at the start all of the big names mm. and then Newcastle did go through a bit of a dip in terms of terms of their star power yeah. when you arrived at, um, at the club were you sold a vision of um, you know you've got X amount of budget and we've now got new uh, new money for new stars or has this just been a kind of grad- gradual progression to where you are now and reforming this squad it's, it's been a gradual progression but I think if any team any team is going to have long term success um, I think the first building block you need is, is a really sound academy. Everybody says it, but it is really so great. true. And you look at any, what I would call, dynasty team in sport, and by dynasty team, I mean a team that has won repeated back-to-back titles. Uh, and you look at it across any sports. So you look at Wigan Rugby League in the in the 80s and 90s, Liverpool in the 70s, Man United in the 90s, Lancashire Cricket, you know, Durham Cricket when they were, when they were successful, St. Helens Rugby League. Wassum Leicester, sort of in the uh, either side of sort of the, the millennium. What they all had in common was they all produced a core of the team and the spine of the team from their own academy. You know, they weren't afraid to add in world superstars. You, you know, you'll never produce all your players yourself. You know, it might be that's utopia. It's never going to happen. Um, but they produced the core of the team themselves. And I think if you can do that, what you get is a group of players that know how each other plays. They're probably more loyal to the club. And actually, from a fan point of view, your local players are always your favourites. Mm. Um, and I just, you know, I think when Newcastle was successful, we we uh, are, we're, were doing well. We we had that. So we had the likes of Tom May, Jamie Noon, Johnny Wilkinson, Jeff Parlin, Ben Woods, Dave Wilson, you know, uh, Lee Dixon. You know, all these guys are internationals um, coming through the team and playing together. Now they might not all be local lads. Uh, a bit like you know the Man United team in the. In the early '90s, when it had sort of the you know it had skulls, but uh, the Neville brothers, Beckham, you know they weren't all local. Beckham wasn't local. But from they, London somewhere, was he not? That Wilkinson wasn't either, but he came to the club at 16. So what we we almost considered one of our own. But the point being is that they they grow up together with a, with a group of mates and a, a, a t- you know a group of cohorts that just get used to playing with each other. And the more you get used to playing rugby with each other, the better you'll be. So. I just think that's the first building block. The second one then is, you know, you want to, uh, you've got to add in, uh, you know, your, your overseas sort of, or your, your external starts, be those players from other parts of the country or be them from overseas. Um, and they provide the, the sort of uh, the magic dust or, or they might help fill a gap where you 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 haven't been strong in your academy for, for a number of reasons and some of it's no fault of your own. If, you know, if you've no big lads born in your area for three or four years, it's, <laughs> you, you, try as try as try as you might, you're not going to produce world class props. So, um, I just think you get that balance right, um, and you'll you'll have long term success. And the best example, or the two best examples at the minute, are Saracens and Exeter. Yeah, Everybody agree. talks about Saracens being a team of superstars. They're not. Look at their team. Their team is built on, uh, you know, a group of a. You know, young English players that have grown up together and, and graduated from the academy. And yes, they add in some stars from overseas. But you look at Saracen; they got the ideal model. They they add three or four players a year. They're not having to turn over fifteen, twenty players a year. You know, they had to when they re, when they sort of rebooted the club sort of seven, eight years ago. 
but they're now down to just putting three or four, you know, quality overseas players in every year and always graduating with three or four academy players. And that's the model I think that we're all we're all chasing. Um, and you know, you need to you need to invest properly. You need to recruit your your staff properly to get there. And and you know, you just need a bit a bit of luck as well. You're absolutely right about what you say about Saracens bringing in uh, lads from the academy. I mean, even their superstars are pretty much all from the the mm. academy. Um, just think, just thinking that through, and one of the things that I worry about with the academy, because although I do 100% agree with everything you've just said, academy credits make it a huge, a huge um, incentive to bring these lads into your first team. Do you ever yeah. worry that the competition for players will just start to get younger and younger and younger, though? Um, potentially, yeah, but I think we've we've got um, we've got enough sort of checks and, and regulations in place that say that you know. Each club has a certain amount of time with your young players uh, to develop them, and if you know if they're now they're not developed, you decide not to take them on. Then, you know, it's they go, it becomes an open market. So I think we've got that right as a sport. Um, mm. I think you've got to give each each club's got its academy area. Each club invests in that area, and I think you've got to. It's almost you know that's the harvest, isn't it? You you know you you sow the seeds and you, you want to be able to harvest the uh, uh, the fruit of that. And if you leave it too long, then you know, somebody else will come in and, and, and pick it off you. But I think you've got to be given an amount of time to, to see through your uh, your investment in these young players. And I think we've generally got it about right. There's always the odd case where, you know, a player moves to another club at sort of 2021 and it causes a bit of fallout, but it's few and far between. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I think the one we could look at, and I'll, I'll probably open a can of worms now by saying it, but, you know, if you truly, truly want to develop uh, young players in the most optimal environments, then you get rid of relegation. Wow! Um, you know, and if it, you know, I'm I'm not alone in thinking this, and and people will look at me and think, well, yeah, he's only saying that because Newcastle, with the exception of this season, are down near the bottom. I'm not. Uh, the reason I say it is, it's been proven. If you don't have the threat of relegation, clubs will start with younger players earlier, mm. uh, and they will. Um, they will, uh, you know, give them more chance uh, rather than buying instead of a, a seasoned professional. So, uh, um, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna respond. <laughs> yeah. right. um, so it'll be, yeah. I just, I just, but if you if you don't have relegation, then uh, you give them uh, the ability to uh, to to flourish. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I. Again, I completely agree with 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 scrapping relegation. The only thing I can't really square is what would you what would you like what would you like to see below the below the Premiership? Would you like to see uh, feeder clubs coming directly in, directly into Newcastle? How would you like to see it structured after that? Um, look, I, I think you you know when I say when I say you don't have relegation, it doesn't automatically mean that you don't have to have uh, no promotion as well. Mm. What I'm a fan of is, look, if that number's 12 in there, we have 12 clubs, and after a while, if the game can support it, uh, and there is a, you know, a commercial argument for it and a playing argument for it, then you increase it. Yeah. Um, so, you you move up to 14, you might go up to 16 eventually, uh, but, even further. So. That's interesting because, I mean, you look at the experiment with. I mean, there are some sports which have naturally expanded and do very well out of it. The NH, um, the NFL would be an, an obvious yeah. one, but clearly, you know, that's a, you know, a completely different kettle fish. If you look yeah. at the Super Fifteen, or Super Rugby, or whatever the current title of it is, yeah, you could look at their expansion and say that hasn't been particularly successful. Actually, the more that they expand, the more they yeah. dilute their product. C- correct, and I think I think they've potentially done it too quickly. Um, uh, and look, the, the, the travel distances involved. Like, I think it just, you know, it truly is a global competition that one now. And I think that break, that you know that places challenges upon the uh, uh, the whole structure as well. So I, I just think it's got to be uh, it's got to be more managed, more sustainable. And I think you know <laughs> the, the biggest counter to my argument of no no relegation is people people will say well, if there's no promotion and relegation. Exeter wouldn't have done what they've done, and and I get that, I get that. But Exeter were ready to come up. Yeah, they they'd lost nothing in four or five finals. They were ready to come up. They've got an area that, you know, they've very very little football there um, around. Mm. Um, so that it, it they've done a tremendous job, but they, they've got every opportunity really to build a massive club down there because, um, you know, they represent a, they truly represent a region. Um, but for every Exeter, there's a Rotherham. There's London Welsh, um, 
you know, there's there's quite a few other clubs that have come up and gone straight back down. And, and in London Welsh's case, it's it's caused the demise of the club. Yeah. Um, you know, they they chased a dream that they couldn't, you know, that they weren't ready for, it and they were never going to be able to turn it around in the 12 months you've got. So again, if you if you're looking at promotion, uh, I, I love promotion when it's right. Give these clubs three or five years to fully embed themselves. But you know, Welsh came up, signed 25 new players. Crazy, um, isn't it? Absolutely crazy. And, but why couldn't they have stuck, you know, if they'd have had a, a bit of a moratorium on getting ready yet, they could have stuck with the team they've got or developed their own young players rather than going out and literally buying anybody that was available. Um, you know, no disrespect to the players they signed, but there's a reason certain players are available in June. Yeah. It's because they've not signed anywhere else. Now, you get the odd exceptions to that, but generally they, they're, they're what's left over. Um, and what's left over means, you know, you're not, you're not getting the cream of the crop. Yeah, uh, yeah. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. I, I completely agree. And not only do you not get the cream of the crop, which you know, yeah. is important, you don't get that team cohesion. And I think actually, in the grand scheme of things, that's even more important. It is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. But, you know, because goes back to my earlier comment, and if you've got a, if you've got a group of players that have, uh, that have played together, um, you know, in your academy from 13 or 14, you, that's real cohesion. Yes. Um, and that's a structure I think you can build on. And again, if you come into a competition where there's no relegation, you'll find that those lads start getting their debuts at 18 and 19. Um, if there's relegation, you'll, you'll still get the odd player getting a debut at 18 and 19, but there won't be as many of them. Yeah, completely agree. Can we? Uh, so, I would just like to ask you quickly about the structure of the Premiership, and in particular, one of my favourite aspects of of the Premiership, which is which is the salary cap. Um, yeah. So, I guess firstly on Newcastle at the cap, and what are your views on it in on it in um, in general, and in particular towards the proposed increases. Um, we're not at the cap. We're, we're getting a lot closer towards it. Um, uh, I'd be against the proposed increases because I think if you look at the sport at the minute, you've probably got, I think this last season, 11 of the 12 clubs running at a loss. That's not sustainable. You know, we, we cannot be relying on, you know, a few guys or a guide each club to uh, yeah. to prop these losses up. And I think within this, you know, we need to take a longer term whole sport view when we come to the salary cap. So, you know, we need to be setting. You know, let's look what the what, what the Americans do and with their collective bargaining agreements and, and what they what they set is percentages that say, you know, if this is the total turnover of the sport, then you know, sixty percent or fifty five percent or whatever that number is will be spent on player salaries and no more. Yeah, I think what we have at the minute is, you know, we've got some clubs. Um, you know, there's there's one club in our league and you, you can look it up. Last year, in its last recorded accounts spent 96% of its turnover on salaries. Wow. Now, that's not player salaries. That's player and staff. You know, so it's all... It leaves 4% to run the club. Well, you know, no surprise to learn that that club operated at around about a £5 million loss. Uh, and I'm not I'm not criticising that because that may well be the business model and that might be the investment they need to, to kickstart the club on. And look, Newcastle has, has, over the last few years, been anywhere between a £2 and a £4 million loss because... You know, we, we have to pay a certain amount on player salaries to avoid relegation. Well, do you know what? Again, it goes back to that argument, doesn't it? If there was no relegation, I'm not saying we would spend less, but perhaps we could take a year, we could take a more longer term view, and ultimately we would have a healthier club because we could invest more then in the academy, we could invest more in the facilities for supporters and, and the off field staff or the coaching. Um, and longer term, we'd have a, we'd have a, a, a I think a more sustainable club, but at the minute we're just we're just a free market, and if you want to stay in the Premiership, unfortunately, you're going to have to spend a certain amount of money. Um, so I think the cap's too high. Um, sorry, I don't think the cap's too high. I think there are too many uh, additional ways you can spend money. So we've got a cap at you know between six and a half, seven million. But actually, with with marquee players, academy credits, injury, and uh, one or two other bits, you can be getting up between nine and ten million. The sport, oh, sorry, most clubs cannot afford that. Yeah. Um, so, 
uh, if that's the case, then I'd actually say let's not let's not bother with it. Let's just throw it out the window because um, if you only got, you should have when you've got a salary catalyst, you should have a minimum of two thirds club, two thirds of the clubs at the absolute cap. Completely agree. And when you get to that, when you get to sort of the two thirds, three quarters, so eight to nine clubs, then look to move it on a bit. Yeah. So, what would be your solution to help enforce to help enforce the cap? Or solutions, even. I think it's a collective bargaining agreement, and it's it's the players uh, and the agents and the club owners and, and uh, the whole the Premiership will be coming together and saying, right, here is our model going forward. So, you know, if the game generates, you know, let's say a hundred million, it, it doesn't, but it's an high season number. Then, <laughs> yeah. you know, we're we're going to spend sixty million of that on player salaries. We're going to spend, you know, five million on. Facility investment. We're going to spend, you know, ten million sort of on a, on a central, um, you know, office and, and resource. So, and as as the central incomes uh, get bigger, then everything moves up with it. Um, but at the minute, we've probably had central incomes go up. I don't know, probably about fifteen percent. And player salaries in the last eighteen months have shot up between thirty and forty percent. So the same players that literally, you know, this this season before last sort of left you in May June came back on 30-40% more. Now, you, you show me any other sector of society where, you know, you get an annual pay rise of 30-40%. It's not sustainable. Yeah, um, uh, why is that all of a sudden? Because it does feel like player salaries over the last few years have just shot up. Because I, I, I think there's a misconception, and it's led by the agents as well, I think there's a misconception that um, uh, the game is, you know, rolling in a lot of new cash. Look, we've had increases, but it, it isn't perhaps the increases that they've said. Um, and look, the top players in any sport always get well paid. And I've not a problem with that because they're the superstars, they're the guys that bring in the sponsors and the spectators yeah. and, and the corporates. We have a level of players, in my opinion. Um, you need them for your squad. They might only play sort of between five and ten games a year. That are not, on an average now, not far off six figures. And it's too much. you know. And But clubs believe that they need them because if you don't have that bigger squad, you don't have that bit of experience, you're probably going to get relegated. So comes back to my earlier argument. If you take away relegation, you can really, really sort of, I think, uh, stop uh, rampant player inflation. Yeah, yeah. Again, um, not to agree with you too much, but I completely agree with that yeah. also. Now, something yeah. which, um, which Steve Vaughan from Gloucester was talking about, and I'd be interested interested to know your view on this. Is he he mentioned it might be an interesting idea to have a commissioner for the league who enforces the league rules? Have, have you ever thought of anything like that? And do you have any particular view on it? Um, I, I sort of get what he's saying. Um, ultimately, the way we're structured at the minute, though, is the league is is the twelve clubs. Mm. Um, do we get somebody sort of who is sort of semi quasi independent? P- potentially, yeah. Um, Look, I think Mark McCafferty and the Premier Rugby Office think they do a great job. I really do. Uh, but ultimately, Mark will be the first to tell you he acts on what the the twelve fourteen shareholders tell him to, you know, vote on and tell him to do. So, um, you know, he doesn't have that level of independence. Um, they, they lead with a lot of things. They bring a lot of uh, uh, a lot of things to the table for uh, for approval or discussion. Um, and as I say, I think I think they do a tremendous job. Um, yeah. So I get what he's saying. I don't think we'll ever get it though. Oh, interesting. But in but in general, you you might potentially be be in favour of it. Yeah, potentially, um, potentially. But you know, all all you need is just one or two clubs and not to agree with it and start you know getting together sort of away from the main meetings and uh, uh, you'd have to have a structure that was strong enough to withstand any sort of you know mini revolution then because it's something that we're not really. We're not really that familiar with in this country, are no. we? So you look at any of the major sports, the executive at the top basically represents the shareholders, and the shareholders are the clubs within that league. Yeah. Now, um, you meant you touched upon it before. Um, you said that only a certain proportion of the clubs in the Premiership are profitable. Are Newcastle yeah. one of them? No, we're not. So we, we, we'll lose about around about two million a year. Um, that's oh. coming down. We, we were up near four million sort of uh, three four years ago. Um, and look, we, we could be profitable tomorrow. We could we could easily do. We just slash the playing budget. We'll probably end up in the championship. Um, so that that's the balance you've got. And you've probably seen now. To, you know, if you go down to the championship to get back out again, it takes 
sorry, it's going to be easy going forward because it's just first past the post. But over the last ten years, it's been a bit of a lottery. Yeah. And for every year that you stay down, you know, you're, you're losing more and more money, so it becomes a bit of a downward spiral. And you know, lead leads are the case in point for that. It's a great club. They've got, you know, they've got a huge area that they're developing. They produce some really fantastic young players. Um, and but you know they've been down there for I think six or seven years, and it it's becomes harder time. and harder every year you're out. So um, look, we could be profitable tomorrow, but we'd, we'd probably get relegated inside twelve months. So do you have a, a date in mind or a year in mind where you think, okay, um, we will be profitable in in X amount of time? For, for me, we're always. I, I think we can always do it within eighteen months, uh, and I think we would have been close recently, um, sort of in the last year or so. But we saw that huge spike in player wages, so we, we probably increased our playing budget by about a million pounds. So, yeah. um, look, it, it's it's definitely definitely attainable. Uh, our crowds are increasing, so we're up ten percent last year. If we can keep that sort of growth going and keep new sponsors coming in, we'll not be far off. Um, but we're, we're, you know, we're looking long term as well because the sport really is maturing now, and I think the the central revenues that are going to come in over the next five years are going to continue increasing at some rate. But what we have to do at a sport is to stop that increased money that comes in at the top, washes straight the way through your organisation, doesn't even touch the size, and goes straight to players and agents. I don't begrudge players getting paid. It's a tough sport. Mm. Um, I do begrudge the the influence of agents now. And the one thing I do now, you know, clubs clubs generally pay agents separately. I, you know, I, I think we need to move away from that. I think we need to give all the money to the players and then the players pay the agents because I think, you know, not with all of them, some good agents out there, but there's some awful ones as well. And I think if the players saw how little some of these agents did, they would begrudge paying them the amounts that we are currently paying them as clubs. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because I can't understand for the life of me why a player would want someone yeah. to act on their behalf but not, but not be paid by them it's complete it, it's totally perverse yeah it, it, look there's there's a there's a slight sort of uh saving in sort of uh tax perhaps to the player and the and, and the club the way we do it but I, I'd, I'd i'd rather pay that bit extra and actually see you know see the discussions then between the player and the agent because some of these get some of these agents we see we see once every two years they come to re-sign the player and they they pocket quite a, a hefty percentage on it and you know, you don't need an agent for that. Look, no. it's not football. You know, we don't have guys going off making as much as on it. We had a guy here called Johnny Wilkes, and he was the only real true superstar. You know, and if you look now with him, rugby, the guys that actually earn the big money's off the field, it's not really the current players. You know, it's it's still the Will Greenwoods, it's still the uh, well, it's still the Johnny Wilkes, yeah. it's, it's it's the Lawrence Delalios. It's those guys that actually were successful ten, twelve years ago. So. Um, we don't we don't have a cohort of players that are earning half a million pound off the field. If we do, there's they're very very few and far between. So, do you know what? You just don't need agents. Yeah, I, I I'm conflicted on this because I'm going to have an agent on hopefully in in a few weeks' time, and I do think there is some genuinely good work that that the agents do, and it's easy to forget if particularly if you you know a um, a financially cap- capable in- individual, and you've got a few more years behind you. How you would negotiate a contract law, and you know what is involved in a good contract, what is involved in a bad contract. Yeah. But on the other hand, if you're just re-signing or extending, I, I, you know, I tend to agree with you. What, what exactly is going on here? Look, what, what the agents do, that they, they do perform a role. Uh, and as I say, there are some very good agents out there, some good guys out there. Um, and what they're effectively doing is they can they can help the club find a certain position or a certain type of player. But they can, and they can also work hard for the player and, as well. And you know, when his contract's up and he wants to move on, they, they have the contacts to to put a number of options in front of the player. Mm. But in terms of what's in the contract, it's it's irrelevant. It's a standard contract; you can't vary it. Every single contract now is the same. That's a good point. No, it is actually, isn't it? You know, there's a slight schedule change where you can add the odd bit in and there, but 99% of the contract is the same as the guy sat next to you in the dressing room. So. They don't. They don't even have to negotiate. They, 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 you know, all they need to negotiate is the amount and the, and the length of the, of the deal, and, and maybe there's image rights involved. What that means as well. That's it. So, to be fair, most players could do this. Um, or for me, I think this is something that the RPA could do. So the players' union. You know, why don't they, you know, negotiate on behalf of 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 the players, mm. you know, individual players? You know, just basically point three or four guys within there and. Uh, and and act as sort of a central uh, agency because I think you know it would help fund the RPA. You know, at the minute the RPA is still funded by the Premiership and the RFU. Um, 
which I, again I feel is strange at times that you have a, a union funded by the people that, uh, <laughs> yeah. that at times they're at loggerheads with. But it, it's the look actually the way we do it now is we 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 put the funding in, but fair play to the the RPA they they have uh, player welfare managers that are very very good and look after the the needs of the players and the uh, uh, and the, their ongoing education. Uh, so that's been a real positive step, but I don't I don't see why they couldn't act on behalf of the uh, the players. Um, yeah, it, it does seem to make sense. I, I know that the um, say PRA is that the football the football equivalent actually do have an a, um, an agency role in quite a lot of cases. Yeah. So uh, just uh, just a thought. I mean, I, this always intrigues me. American sports quite often will publish the salary of players, and that's yeah. interesting because you get a, a, a sense of where that position is how much they're worth and how much your player is worth yeah. it's also very good for salary caps would you ever be in, in favour of that? Um, never thought about it uh, potentially yeah potentially yeah because I think uh, um, it, it does provide that absolute clarity um, that, that perhaps supporters you know would find interesting so yeah look I, would, I wouldn't be against it I'm not not massively for it, but I, I understand why people would uh, would be interested in that. Yeah, I mean, I, certainly from a fans' po- point of view, it'd be very it it would be very interesting. Yeah, it would. It's it's sort of I think now with that, that sort of you know everybody does fantasy leagues and draft leagues as well. Yeah. people have sort of almost got used to now sort of um, you know assigning values to players, and then it's it's interesting, isn't it? How how you build a squad? Do you do you go with um, and I've seen all models. Do you go with three or four really high, highly paid players, and the rest on, on a lot less, or do you, do, you, do you sort of even that money out? What model gives you the best, you know, rate of success, return of success? Now it's not just down to how that is. You know, you've got injuries within there as well, and international call-ups. It's it's quite a, it's quite a complex model. But uh, no, it's it's. I, I think it will be interesting um, uh, to see. Yeah, can we just touch upon a uh, squad building? Uh, only, only because you mentioned something then, and I've had this theory for a while now. Um, that the ideal, the ideal player for directors of rugby and pe- people, like, people like yourself, are the guys who aren't quite England in, in England internationals, uh, because of course you keep them, keep them all, um, uh, uh, all season. Do you, do you ever put consideration onto stuff like that? And, and how do you go about building the squad? What's the composition of it? Uh, this mainly lines with with Dean, but you know we sit down as a as a, as a board and, and discuss the way we're going to go. And ultimately, I think the ideal model would be that you'd have a couple of England internationals in there because you want the profile that that brings the club, and there's also a certain financial return as well. You then want, you know, perhaps the biggest section of your squad to be English qualified players, because again, the way we're funded now, if we have to average 15 English qualified players in both the Premiership and Europe. So you need a, a big pool of players to rotate for that, uh, and then you, you know, you and that primarily again is going to come from your academy because if you're producing English qualified players, if you're pushing you know three or four through into the first team squad every year, over a period of time you'll build up a, a good you know good amount of players. Um, so and then you, you want your international stars, don't you? Because your stars perhaps bring you something that uh, you you perhaps don't have with um, your English players. Um, and you know they bring that bit of stardust as well. So uh, to me, that's the ideal composition. Um, the benefit of having the English players that don't called up is that they're there 22 weekends of the year in the Premiership, and uh, you know all, all for Europe as well. So um, that's the ideal model. It doesn't always work like that, and you know you get some clubs. Uh, and I think Harlequins will be the first to. Uh, in fact, I was speaking with the, with the guys at Harlequins at the weekend, and what they'll say is. You know they've almost had too much success with getting players in the England squad. I think they usually have six or seven, <laughs> yeah, don't they? Completely agree um, with that. And w- when we played them, you know, we played them in um, at home. I think back in the uh, the autumn internationals, and we hammered them at home. And then we played them away outside of the Six Nations and got hammered down there. Now, of course, there's lots of other factors in there, but the fact was when you're playing a team that's got Mike Brown in, um, uh, Joe Marler, uh, Sinclair. I'm trying to think of the other ones now. Uh, sort of Jamie Roberts, all Rob these Shaw. internationals, yeah, yeah, all these guys. And then when you play the team that doesn't have them, it, it's like playing a different team. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, yeah, you, for us, we'd want a couple, um, mm-hmm. but no more than a couple. 
Now, I think throughout this interview, what has become abundantly clear is exactly how much you do and how um, and and how and how busy you are. So um, I won't uh, I won't take up too, too much more of your time, but I will just ask um, these last these last two questions before we wrap up. Um, International development of the game is very important, and you have teamed up with Saracens. If, if teamed up is quite the right word, you're off, um, uh, you're off to Philadelphia. How excited are you about that? And uh, what do you think it's going to add to the club? Yeah. We're really excited because uh, I think as a, you've got to look at this uh, from a, from a whole sort of Premiership wide perspective. You know, we've uh, we've identified America as the next potential big growth area. We've got a great TV deal now with NBC Sports in America. And, and that actually might start delivering more eyeballs in America than in the UK on a live basis, probably within the next 12 months. So that's really significant. <laughs> it's crazy. So you're now talking to, to potential sponsors and advertisers, and, and that's, that's some massive numbers there. Um, mm. But I think to, to help sort of continue that growth in the US, uh, the Premiership has to start doing, doing what, what we're going to be doing and taking competitive games over there, a bit like London Irish did two years ago. And it's something that's proved really successful for the NFL, isn't it? You know, you can take friendlies over our exhibition games, but people want the real deal. Um, and they'll get that in Philadelphia on the, the 16th of September. So we're playing our round three game against Saracens uh, at the uh, Talon Energy Stadium in Philadelphia, which is 18,000 capacity. It's the home for the uh, Philadelphia Union, which is the MLS team over there. Mm. Um and it's it's going to be really exciting. I think what it gives it gives the club is is increased exposure um, in in the states. And you know if we're going to get a lot of people now in the states starting to support uh, uh, rugby and, and Premiership rugby, we'd like them to start looking as Newcastle as, as, as their club. Um, so yeah, look, it's a long term aim, um, but it, I think it gives some pretty significant short term benefits. Uh, we had a you know we had a reaction from our supporters here. We really weren't too too pleased about losing the Saracens home game so we've we've lost we, we've given up a home game to go over there but I think when we explain that look the, the the financial return the guaranteed financial return we get from staging the game is significantly higher than, than playing the game at Kingston Park and actually probably you know funds Toby Flood coming back to the club yeah. they sort of get it they understand that you know we're, we're one of the smaller clubs we're always you know we have to battle for every penny that we put then into the squad um, you know we operate Probably at the lower end of the of the, you know, salary cap spend uh, or squad spend. So events like this that can can help you know put more money into the team. I think that they get the long term benefits, uh, and we're gonna we're gonna make sure they're compensated if they bought a season ticket more than more than just sort of one sixteenth of uh, of the season ticket, and we'll put event for them here, and hopefully we can uh, we can use it to break our uh, our losing record against Saracens as well. So we've not been to Saracens for nine years. Um, home or away so you know ultimately um we've taken where we've not had a lot of success at kingston park look we'd always beat anybody we'd always back ourselves to beat anybody here mm. uh, but um i think the fact that it's saracens is is is, is good for the club because it, it you know it might it might give us that little boost to finally not you know get rid of that hoodoo and, uh, and get them beaten and also ironically for you uh, a chance to play Saracens not on a plastic pitch. So uh... <laughs> there, there is that as well. So we both play on the exact same pitch as well. So the same manufacturer, the same uh, the same exact same type of turf. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it'll it'll be interesting. Look, wherever you play, you could play Saracens on the moon, couldn't you? It's going to be a tough game. <laughs> yeah, quite. So uh, it's you know if we're if yes, the pitch has a factor, but ultimately it's the fact you know it comes down to what sort of team you can get out, of, where you're prepared, and, and what your game plan is. They're the most important things, you know. Less so, sort of perhaps where you play them or on what servers you play them on. Well, just 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 anecdotally on the on the American America game, I went to the last one in New York, and it's one of the few Premiership games outside of the final where. It's a real sense of occasion, and the, I think the more sense of occasion that you can get, the better. And for anyone who doesn't believe that America's big in the United States, our podcast, both this one and Egg Chasers, the biggest audience, and on some weeks our biggest audience, is actually the United States. So, uh, yeah, that's that, it's, that seems it's huge. Very and I think if rugby can can you know make it big over there, and it, look, it's a generational project, isn't it? It's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take twenty years of you know, continual investment and, and work across all levels of the sport without the top level of the sport all the way down the grassroots. 
But I think if it, if it can do it in the States, you know, the States could be the, could be the next big powerhouse within World Rugby. Um, because that's one thing we've got to look at as well within within World Rugby. Um, you know, we... we we, you know, we, we've we Newcastle's won the rights to host the the 2019 European Cup finals, so it's tremendously exciting for the club and for the city. Uh, that in two years' time we'll have the best in Europe here. But when you actually sit back, and I'm not I'm not sort of decrying the tournament. The best in Europe is effectively the UK and Ireland, France, and a bit of Northern Italy. Let, yeah. Let's be blunt on this. Well, so yeah. I I'd love one day the the European Cup to be a bit like the Champions League in football, where you've got all 50 nations from 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 Europe, sort of represented in a, in a knockout tournament. Now that might be utopia, might never happen, but we need to sort of increase the reach of the game, both in Europe and worldwide. And again, you look worldwide. The, the Rugby World Cup is a fantastic occasion; it really is. But you know, there's still only I think it's still only four countries won it. There's still only been five countries in the final. Uh, the, mm. the, that that needs to double, and it needs to double quickly. We need to start to get other countries into the into the quarterfinals. And look, you could you could almost predict sort of eighteen or nineteen of the twenty finalists already. And really, it's just that last one or two places that seem to rotate every every time. Well, actually, we don't want that. We want you know we want only ten of the places to be guaranteed. We want the other ten to start to become emerging nations. Or you know, we want China in there. We you know why not? We want India in there. We want Pakistan playing in the in the Rugby World Cup finals. But again, that's a generational project. So, mm. a bit like America, you know, it's long-term aims. But if rugby's ever gonna, I think, you know, be up there anywhere near football, it has to become truly global. And it's getting there. It is getting it, there. Uh, to, to, to be but, fair, but events like this in in America really, you know, will will push that on a bit further. Excellent. Well, Mick, hopefully I can join you for uh, a coffee or more more preferably a beer over in um, over in Philadelphia on the sixteenth of September. Look forward to it. Uh, just, just before we go, anywhere that we can keep up to date with uh, the Newcastle Falcons news and what you guys are up to? Yeah, just all, all the usual channels. So uh, newcastlefalcons.co.uk on the website. Uh, I think it's at Falcons Rugby on Twitter and, and whatever it is on Facebook. I should know that, shouldn't I? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, we, you know, we, we've, we've also got an easing database. So there's loads of ways, you know, as all clubs know, we, we do all the usual channels. We try to make it interesting. It's a bit more of a challenge over the... Uh, over the summer when there's not as much rugby going on. But, uh, you know, we've got lots in the pipeline with the Philadelphia game, the European finals in two years and, you know, all the new signings. We, we're, we're looking forward to a really exciting season and uh, thanks for uh, your support as well. No, no problem at all. All right, Mick, thanks a lot. Cheers, thanks very much.